Hi, Dr. Ray. I love your show. Let me show you what it looks like to be a holy person, and maybe you'll want to be holy like me. You just patted yourself on the back. You seem like an honest guy. But you're a psychologist. Do you have some advice? I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what to do. You're my second favorite Italian person. I think you have a way of making people feel relaxed. She needs to feel the consequences of being a jerk. You know, I was looking for a deeper answer. Obviously, I'm a failure. Obviously, I'm inept. You are awesome. Keep up the good fight, my friend. Now, from the studios of Living Bread Radio Network in Canton, Ohio, the hometown of Mother Angelica, here's Dr. Ray. Somebody was telling me that to get into the Guinness Book of World Records, it's, it's very tough to break one of the records. What you do is you get a new category. Find something that the Guinness people would say, okay, that, that's, that's a legitimate category, and then you set the record in that category, until at least until other people start weighing in on that category. Well, I've used that philosophy with my computer. Uh, <clears throat> computer has levels of chess. You know, the, the beginner, the grandmaster, the five-year-old. I started out with a five-year-old. That's, that's the one I did. And the computer beat me every time. Every time I couldn't beat the computer, but then I decided, well, I'm going to I'm going to change the venue. That's all. So I went to uh, kickboxing, and uh, I I trounced the computer. It, it it had no chance against me in, in kickboxing. Nice to have you with me here on the Doctor Is In. Um, this program is a variant of the Doctor Is In. This is Look Back Friday. It's an idea we came up with, and Andrew corrected me last time we talked. Andrew Kruchek, my producer, man. It, we've been doing Look Back Friday for, he said, is 11 years, Andrew? Is that what it is? Could be. 10 in June. All right, 10 years. Now, I originally said five. I said, well, we've been doing it for about five years. That's because I enjoy you people so much and consider it the privilege for being here. How's that for schmaltz, huh? Look Back Friday is where we take... Calls. Andrew edits them. He, he, he gets rid of a lot of my, my fluff talk in the very beginning. And he edits them. Sometimes uh, I go on pretty long at the end, so he cuts me off at the end. But the reason that the calls make the cue of look-back calls is that there's something in the call that I either want to comment on more or a direction I want to go or some kind of term used by the caller or something that the caller says that is a theme that comes out often in calls or even in therapy, and that's how they make it. But the main reason they make it is I just want to talk more. That's all. That's pretty much straightforward. Pretty much uh, follow the self, as St. Thomas Aquinas says. So we will get to those in a moment. I don't think John Rosemond writes columns anymore. I think Rosemond's in his 80s. But he had a very, very popular parenting column. And, and Rosemond, Rosemond was very much deciding that, uh, that Grandma knew a lot about child-rearing, a lot more than the experts did. Rosemond didn't like what was happening to parenting. And Roseman thought, geez, we've, we've thrown away so much wisdom of generations for new and enlightened ways. And I think in a confession, one of the columns I read of Roseman's, he had uh, two daughters, I believe. 
he tried to raise him. He Roseman was a, I believe, a, a master's level counselor, master level social worker at some level, maybe master level psychologist. I don't know exactly what his training was, and he tried to raise them according to the new and enlightened child rearing ideas, and it wasn't working at all. And Roseman did, as I understand it, what a lot of people do that come to my office which is they parented a certain way, particularly in the area of discipline and supervision and freedoms, because they thought that was the way to do it. And it was blowing up. It was getting very, very ugly and turbulent. So they come in and they say, what, what, what are we doing here? What, what's going on? I, don't, I just don't like this direction. I just thought I was doing everything the way you're supposed to do it. and It's not working. And Roseman had that kind of revelation. All of that is leading up to this. Now, we're a number of weeks past the first of the year. But this is Roseman's, he called it, Family Resolutions Worth Keeping. Now, there's, there's 14 of them here. I'm just going to pick a few of them because we've got a rather long look-back call that I need to save time for. Given that this is the first column of a new year, I'm proposing a number of parenting New Year's resolutions for my readers to consider. The list is by no means comprehensive. It's a good beginning on what is probably, and and I think this summarizes Roseman's philosophy, a much-needed family revolution. In other words, turn on its head the way we've been doing things. One. We will not throw expensive event parties for our children on their birthdays. You know, you bring in the Toys R Us truck and seven bouncy centers. Instead, we will confine all birthday celebrations to our family, including extended family. We will keep it uncomplicated. A special dinner for the birthday boy or girl's favorite food, a cake, the obligatory song and a few simple gifts, mostly clothing or other useful things. Dave Barry, one of the funniest columnists I've ever read, said, There is a time when we should stop celebrating birthdays. There is an age to stop celebrating birthdays. That age is 11. <laughs> All right, give me another one here. Mm-hmm. We will show our love for our neighbors by properly disciplining our children, insisting on proper behavior and reprimanding immediately, even if that means in front of other people, when they behave otherwise. And on those occasions, we will also insist they apologize appropriately. If we have not already done so, We will assign a routine of daily chores to each of our children, at least to those who have reached their third birthdays. (laughs) Okay, And we will insist that said chores be done and done properly before recreation or relaxation. Now here's one where I don't agree necessarily. When our children ask us for cell phones, which nowadays they start asking 8, 9, 10, we will tell them that they may have cell phones when they are able to pay for them, as well as for the monthly bills. The only thing I'd say about that, 
And I think this is what Roseman is saying. He says, really not possible to buy a smartphone because they're very expensive and also to pay the monthly bills unless you are old enough to have a job. You're not going to do it by babysitting and you're not going to do it by raking the neighbor's leaves. Uh, But uh, my view on that is it doesn't necessarily matter that you're old enough to pay for it yourself. Uh, For me, trustworthiness coupled with that particular financial line is what I would add. Uh, let me do one more because I'm going to take a, a quick break here. We will put our marriage first and our children second for their sake as well as ours. They will revolve around us. They will not grow up thinking the world revolves around them. Well, they may think that, but you're not going to feed into it. If there's a whole bunch of these, uh, maybe I'll get to to more of them later or in a future program. But right now, let me take the break because I got a rather extensive call from a mom whose adult son has significant mental problems. I'm Dr. Ray. So very nice to have you with me here on The Doctor Is In. I'm Dr. Ray Garendi. Monday through Friday, 1 o'clock Eastern Time program. Website, drray.com, D-R-R-A-Y.com. That's where you go if you want to book a speaking engagement or if uh, you are interested in any one of the 15 or 16 books that are there. Uh, interestingly enough, the speaking engagements are the main reason initially why I was very, very reluctant to... Uh, come to Catholic Radio. When I was offered, I very enthusiastically said, I don't think so. Because at that time, I was speaking maybe 100 to 125 times a year. And that was uh, on top of my private practice. That was what I did. Uh, But my wife said, Ray, give it a try. Okay. And I found out what Catholic media could really do for people's lives. So I'm hooked. Let's go to Joan from Georgia. I have a 26-year-old son. He is the the youngest of four children. He had a psychotic break five years ago and was hospitalized for that. There were two, there were a couple things going on. He had been smoking an enormous amount of marijuana prior to that uh, and perhaps other drugs also. But it also came out uh, something that we had kind of suspected but couldn't confirm that he had been sexually abused when he was a child. So although the hospital gave him a diagnosis of bipolar, after uh, some amount of therapy, it was felt like it was more of a PTSD psychotic break. He was able to get back on his feet. What did they, Joan, what did they say the trauma was? The sexual abuse. Well, maybe just remember it. No, the sexual abuse and maybe all the years of keeping it in. Was he a young child? Yes, and it was a family member. Ongoing? No. So one time. A couple of times. Okay. And so he was what five, six, seven, eight? Yes. Yep. All right. Okay. 
So they said on that basis, apparently on what he told them, was that uh, that that had been eating at him psychologically for years. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. You're giving me a good good quasi so quick he, history. He um, he stopped taking medication because uh, he said it made him feel weird, and he did okay for a couple of years. Not great. Uh, he was able to finish college and he yeah, was able to get a job. It was not really thriving, but I could not get him to continue with any therapy or even consider medication. He had another break a couple months ago, so that would be five years from the first break. What was this the break like, break, Joan? What was the what was the break like? What were the main symptoms? He was hallucinating. He was well at first when they when my other children first called me because he called them first and they went and got him. First he he wasn't talking, and then when I got him back to my house and he started talking, he was hallucinating. And what I didn't understand until afterwards is that he was actually talking to. He thought he was a god, small g god, who was conversing with other small g gods about how to keep his family safe. And he thought that the house that we were in was a particularly good bunker to keep us safe, and he was having those conversations, which I didn't really realize at the time. He was also very manic, you know, very talking very fast, and then he would go from that to, to just, you know, rolling up in a ball and crying and being very scared. Although I wanted to avoid it, we, we put him back into a hospital, and, and I had had some inkling that there might be some mania in the previous couple months. So you saw what they call prodromal signs, a little little indication yes. that the momentum was building. Yes, yes. We do, now you know if he was, do you know if he was using? Yes. He was using? Correct, yes, he was. Well, that could be good news in a, in a sort of perverse way, and I'll explain here in a moment, but please, please go ahead. So did the hospital stabilize him? The hospital stabilized him. Um, it's it's pretty clear that you know that bipolar is his diagnosis. Um, they put him on bipolar medication, and he seems to have steadied out. We have found a good psychiatrist to work with him. My issue is he is very anxious to get back to his life, and his, his by his life meaning employment, because he considers himself a total failure for having had two psychotic breaks, and if he can't support himself, then, you know, what, of what worth is he? I think it might be a little early for him to try to go back to, it's actually not going back to employment. He left his previous employment, then had the break, and now he's gotten new employment, but I think it might be a little too early. There's more and more research coming out, and, and there's no way to make this diagnosis, and I wouldn't presume to make it here. More research is coming out that marijuana is dangerous. That in a percentage of cases, depending upon what's in the marijuana, depending upon the potency of the marijuana, it can lead to outright psychosis. Uh, this is this is not your your daddy's 1960s marijuana. The THC content is much higher. And it's oftentimes mixed with some nasty stuff. So we don't know that. You are convinced that the bipolar diagnosis is correct, which means 
this for your son is something that is cyclic in his brain. But the medication seems to stabilize it, which is wonderful news, except he doesn't cooperate necessarily with the medication. Now, he didn't like the way it made him feel. Obviously, he's got a psychiatrist now. If he tells that to the psychiatrist, the psychiatrist can tinker with the medication or try other antipsychotics. Here's, I think, where you can help your son. To emphasize, now, I don't know how he'll respond to this, but you can at least say it. This has nothing to do with who he is as a person. Is he a religious kid? No, he was he, he was raised in the Catholic faith, but uh, he has definitely moved away from it. All right. Has he moved away from God totally? No. All right. Well, you could at least come from the perspective of, because he's a child of God, he's infinitely valuable, and whether he had a psychotic break is meaningless to God's love. It has nothing to do with it. Nothing whatsoever. Right. Uh, if he says to himself, well, there's something weak in me, there's something broken in me, because I had those breaks. And I would assume that the people who treated him would explain to him that this is a biochemical process. We don't quite understand it, but we do know enough to say that something in the brain is not working right, and it isn't because of some deficiency in his personality. could happen to you, it could happen to me, could happen to anybody. And that's what he's got to understand, so that he doesn't continue to think See, he's got two problems. One, he had the psychotic breaks, which was probably beyond his control, unless, unless they were drug-mediated. Now, if he had a predisposition toward psychosis, would a drug certainly, certainly do not help at all? All right? Not unusual for the drugs to trigger a psychotic break in someone so predisposed. So... In the sense that the psychotic breaks, we're going to assume we're beyond his control. What is in his control is how he interprets them. If he interprets them as, I am a deficient human being. I am a weak, unstable wreck. Now he's, got, now he's piling on top of himself, is what he's doing. Is he doing that, John? Yes. Okay. I would hope a good therapist would help him understand that that thinking is inaccurate. Thinks not realistic. Just, just as I'm um, a god talking to other gods is unrealistic, the thinking that I am a deficient, wretched, unlovable human being, it may not be as <laughs> loss of contact with reality, but it's still unrealistic. So in that sense, there's a parallel between the two events. Oh boy, there's so many places to go with this, and I'm not even sure I'm going to get to all of them before the hard break. Mom mentioned that he had his first break at 21. Certain types of psychoses are very commonly late teens, 20s. That is the, the, the most common time frame. And <clears throat> obviously there are many, many ways, many pathways to get to a psychosis. Dr. Ray, what's a psychosis? Psychosis is a very serious mental disorder, usually involves some kind of contact with, uh, loss of contact with reality, uh, some kind of very, very obvious thinking or mood problem. Now, mom, mom identified the mood problems. Here was a kid who was acting manic, 
pressured speech, high energy, agitated, and then almost a switch tripped. And he curled up in a semi-fetal position and started to ball. Again, when you see that, that kind of dramatic mood turnaround, there's something usually biochemically going on. Now, there's something that I really, really uh, have multiple questions about. And that is this. And I, I didn't chase this with Mom, and I think that's one of the reasons why I tagged this as a look-back call. He had inappropriate sexual contact as a young child a couple of times, age five and six. That was tagged as, in the PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis that he was given, that was tagged as the precipitating event. That started it. Then, whoever he told, mom or therapist or doctor or hospital, that this had been eating at him for all those years. Their conclusion was that, well, obviously this finally took its toll on his emotional stability. Here's the question, and and obviously this is something I would chase as a therapist. Was there something about his early thinking... And, and more and more evidence is coming out now that people who have had psychotic breaks in their late teens, 20s, have kind of questionable or shaky thinking uh, as adolescents or even as children that isn't manifestly psychotic. They aren't losing touch with reality, but there is a, a bent in in them so perhaps some of the same processes that ultimately caused the psychotic break were at play in a much milder way when he couldn't let go of this abuse at age five and six i'll talk more about that on the other side of this break Thank you for joining me, Dr. Ray Garendi here. Program Doctor is in this Look Back Friday. If you weren't with me before the break and you know who you are, I will do a quick summary because there's more to say. Mom called in about a 26-year-old son who had a psychotic break at age 21. He had been smoking marijuana and probably involved in other drugs. Abuse as a child, uh, two episodes, and he was five or six. He apparently told whomever that he had been interviewed uh, during his break, he probably went to a hospital inpatient setting, that this had eaten at him. This had been bothering him for years and years and years and years. So they diagnosed him as post-traumatic stress disorder because he was psychotically reacting, not only to the episodes when he was five or six, but to his inability to let go of those episodes. Okay, 
it is quite unusual, and I, I can't say it didn't happen in this case, but highly unlikely that because of this particular traumatic incident as a young child, and we don't know how traumatic it was, we don't know exactly what the extent of the abuse was, that a psychotic break would occur. It could be bothersome, and as he called it, eats at me, but we'll get to that in a second too. But the psychotic break was probably something he was organically predisposed to. So to, and this is very commonly done, to pin a severe reaction upon one or two episodes, and by severe I don't mean a maladjusted reaction, I mean a psychotic reaction, a loss of contact with reality. That's a qualitatively different reaction. Is not not at all common. Not at all. Now one might say, oh come on Dr. Ray, there's all kinds of, of heavy tragedies that people experience in horrific circumstances. That's true. That's true. And that can make them very maladjusted in life. It can make them cause all kinds of emotional problems. But psychotic breaks are of a very different nature. And much often they are mediated by some kind, and we don't understand all the avenues that this can happen in, some kind of neurochemical dysfunction. Now, he said it was eating at him for years. The question that could be asked is why? Oh, come on, Dr. Ray. He was sexually inappropriately touched or we don't I don't know what the actual details were. It is unusual for something like that to eat at people for years. What? Come on, Dr. Ray. No, it, it is. It is. Most people uh, get over it. They adjust to it. They move on. It, it affects them in some ways, but it, it doesn't it doesn't become their dominant mode of thinking for years, affecting many, many parts of their lives. That said, the question becomes, why? Why did it eat at him for years? If you say, well, it's because of the event. There's another possible explanation. And again, I can't know this, but I would certainly explore it if he was with me in therapy. His thinking was becoming a little shaky, even as a child and an adolescent. This is not uncommon. When somebody has a psychotic break and you look back and you say, yeah, you know, he kind of had some odd reasoning. We always just chalked it off as that's who he is. He kind of looks at life a little differently than people. And, and sometimes he would say things and I'm thinking, where's he coming from with that? That, doesn't, that seems kind of odd. Sometimes that is there. And it doesn't really manifest itself in such a significant way until those chemicals really start to percolate. They, they get messed up. Now that said, the good news is, if you want to call it good news, his symptoms were what they would call, what is called, positive symptoms. Hallucinations. Pressure speech. Delusions. 
just positive symptoms, and they are more they are more responsive to medication than what is commonly called negative symptoms. Uh, gross lack of personal hygiene, uh, retreat from any kind of social contact, a a serious loss of motivation or interacting with any other people. That doesn't seem to respond quite as well to medication as the positive symptoms do. Which is good, because mom said they, they cleared him up. He wants to go back to work. And she's saying, I don't think he's ready. you got to weigh it. If he is interpreting his psychotic breaks not as a mental illness over which he had no control, unless you want to say that he had control over the drugs, which may have precipitated it, but only God knows that. So we could assume that this was going to happen kind of anyway. Drugs or no drugs. Therefore, it was not in his power. And the sexual abuse didn't cause it. If we can convince him of that, almost like an illness of diabetes, something went wrong in the body, we can convince him of that, getting past this, I'm just a useless, disordered wreck. I would... If it were me, I would think about allowing him to pursue some kind of job that gives him a sense of, I'm normal. I think that would be real critical at this time. Dr. Ray, what if he fails? Well, obviously you can't guarantee he won't, but you weigh it. You say, which is, which is the least risky avenue? Do we, quote-unquote, hold off on letting him pursue some kind of if you want to call it a career, maybe just even an occupation, that would make him feel much better about himself. We hold off on that. Uh, well, how much more is he going to deteriorate? The other point is this. This reveals how even a psychosis has to be interpreted. He's misinterpreting it. The part of his brain that is still reasonable and rational is thinking about it in ways that are inaccurate, but they're not crazy. So because of this, he, he is not, the psychosis is not affecting him in his understanding of the psychosis. He's thinking clearly about the psychosis. But what he is doing is he's saying, because of the psychosis, that means I'm an awful, terrible failure. That's not crazy thinking. It's irrational thinking, but it's not crazy. And that's an area where a therapist, a counselor, maybe even mom, could really help him to digest and understand what happened. And with medication, there's a good chance that he can be pretty stabilized out. And that this may not recur, but if it does we can adjust the medication. Complex stuff that we're only just beginning to understand.
Gregorindi, a warrior against psychological correctness. There is a parallel to psychological correctness. I call it spiritual correctness, and that's the idea that psychological correctness essentially says, well, if you do all the correct psychological things, your kids are going to become very well-adjusted. That's a guarantee. Spiritual correctness is something that entraps an awful lot of faith-filled Catholic parents or Christian parents, and that is, if I do all the good psycho, if I do all the good spiritual things, immerse them in their faith, and we live a faith-filled life, that's going to guarantee that when they're adults, they're going to embrace it. It's going to raise the odds. It's not going to guarantee, and that's the trap of spiritual correctness. Um, <laughs> Julie from Colorado. The call, if I re- remember, if I recall is about uh, her husband passing away. He, we huh. had been fighting cancer for two years, and we thought we would win because he had a form that was 85% treatable, but we didn't. He was 58 years old, and I read the saints of you know, just trying to find comfort and and sometimes they're comforting, and sometimes they just cause me to be more distressed. And my priest says, well, don't read those, because <laughs> they're not for you. But one, St. James and Mr. says that you must submit to the great Lord, humble yourself voluntarily under his overwhelming power. And St. Hedwig, you must adore the decrees of the Almighty, not only in happy days, but in those of sorrow and bereavement. And... Right now, honestly, I'm just going from day to day, sometimes moment to moment, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if how I know when I need help and how I know when I'm just walking this, riding this roller coaster with blindfolds on, never knowing what's going to hit me around the corner. And I was hoping that you could maybe give me some signals. Is it safe to say? that by far your husband is the closest person to you ever to pass away? Oh, yeah. I mean, I lost my mother and and his mother, but oh, yeah. His, his, he, was, he was my everything. We, were, we did everything together. We were very close. So it's also safe to say that what you're experiencing, and you put it so well, moment to moment, one foot in front of the other. What you're experiencing, you've never, ever experienced before. Oh, no. The hole in my heart is so big. Right. And because of that, you, as, as well as pretty much everybody who loses a dear loved one, is knocked over by the strength of grief. And it just keeps getting stronger, Dr. Ray. I didn't, I, I didn't expect that. I thought, you know, it would start to kind of heal, but the holes are more apparent. You know, all the things we used to do, the things we used to do together, there's just more holes. Not necessarily, Julie. A lot of times I will tell folks who come in, and if they've lost a child or a spouse, I will say, in a lot of respects, the first year, there are no rules. 
people will say, well, Julie, you got to get out a little more. You can't just kind of can't just sit in your house. You got to get out. You got to you got to start living life again. Or, well, Julie, you know, you need to you need to uh, you need to pray more. Julie, you need everybody gives you advice, and you don't have to listen to any of it. <laughs> you can say to yourself, "Here's the things we do know." One, it's the person that meant most to you in the whole world, next to our Lord. Two, his absence is everywhere. You'll go places for the first time in six months after he passed that that you used to go with him, and now you're gone there again. Or Christmas, or Easter, or a birthday, or a grandchild's birthday, or something is new, and it'll it'll just hammer home that he's not there again. So that's normal, Julie. That is normal. You, the one thing I don't want you to do is to look at yourself and say, what is wrong with me? I don't think there's anything wrong with you given how much you loved him and all that he meant to you. There's a book I want to refer you to. It's by C.S. Lewis. It's called A Grief Observed. He was so much in love with a woman for four years. And she died. I, I suspect she was in her 50s, too. And he described what the grief was like. He, at one point, he called it like being so hungry that your stomach ached. He said, it's just an empty, hollow kind of feeling. Well, it's a good description. Sure. Sure it is. Now, if you say to yourself, well, do I need, do I need some kind of psychiatric help here? Do I need uh, medicine? I can't make that call from here, Julie, but if you're experiencing grief and it hasn't it hasn't totally paralyzed your life. I mean, you're not getting out of bed, okay? Or if you're working, you're not going to work or you're or you're ceasing to do every single thing that used to fill up your days, then yeah. Then this this is something you might want to get some attention given to. In the beginning, when uh, when Julie initially talked about I should have I should have asked uh, how long ago did your husband pass? Um, Andrew, you didn't you didn't cut that part out of the call, did you? By any chance? Probably not. Andrew leaves the significant parts in there. I don't know why I didn't ask that. That was would have been one of my first questions I should have asked. Was it six months ago? Was it eight months ago? The the sense I got from her that it was within the past year. It was relatively recent. That said, she was reading the saints. And the saints were saying things like, well, you have to embrace the will of God. You know, you have to trust God in what he decided, what he permitted, etc., etc. And she was feeling pretty bad. I mean, I, I, could have, I could have immediately addressed this particular aspect of the call, but I wanted to hear more about what was going on with her. And that is this. She felt somehow she was falling short, maybe in her faithfulness, in her trust of God, because her emotions were so raw, so powerful. They were overwhelming her. And she'd read the saints looking for comfort, and as she said, it didn't comfort me, because she felt spiritually inept. 
falling short of being holy in her view of this. That's not true. When our Lord came upon the tomb of Lazarus, he knew what he was going to do. He knew he was going to raise Lazarus. So why did he cry? What was it? He perfectly knew his father's will. But he still cried. Now there's all kinds of speculation from people who are scripture scholars on why that was. But nevertheless, it hit our Lord hard. So, it doesn't mean a lack of faith because emotions can get very, very troubled. Very troubled. That's part of why I chase the whole idea of this is a, a I guess, a once-in-a-lifetime kind of experience. The loss of someone who was her soulmate. I said that to my wife today. We, we were making the bed. And I said, honey, if, if, if you weren't here, the hole would be so huge for me, I'd probably talk to you all day long. And so she experienced that hole. Julie did. And she was totally buried by its power. How do you anticipate something that strong? You can't. That's why I so often advise people that there's no rules. There's no rules. Because this experience is is so overwhelming that years later you're still wobbly. Now I guess with Julie this was still pretty fresh because she kept saying the holes are getting bigger and I think at least that was my guess in the call that she was experiencing more and more situations that she and her husband used to share but they don't anymore and when those situations all arise and if they did everything together then pretty much everything she's going to do is going to remind her that we once were partners in this almost everything even something as little as getting a cup of coffee and sitting down in the kitchen will remind her that we used to sit in the kitchen. So every event, when you're that close to somebody, reminds you of them when they're not there. And I obviously couldn't chase this in a radio call. I would chase it in therapy. Julie was not saying, but I was listening between her lines, when she said, it's getting worse... I think she was really asking, will it only continue to get worse until the day I die? That's what I think she was saying. Of course not. But there still will be those reverberating moments six years from now. I think about my dad. My dad died 20 years ago. My dad died... (laughs) the night before I came in here and did this show and I think about Pop and I can still tear up and still water up 
when I think about Pop. And I'll say, hey, Pop, I miss you so much. And Mom, too. She died 16 years ago. That's, that's normal love. It's not lack of faith. I'm Dr. Ray. got about a minute and a half left the program the clock rules it's kind of the way it is the clock rules sometimes Christians must wonder if I believed down in the depths of my heart that this person at least by everything I can observe and understand will be with God then I should not be as distressed. I don't know if that necessarily follows. I think so much of it is missing the person. Not being with them. Knowing the, the finality of it. Knowing that that's it. You'll, you'll never see them again on this earth. That, I think, is the kind of realization that can overwhelm somebody. Because so much of what we do is correctable or it can it can change or when there's a when there's a sadness that happens, uh, sometimes it lifts and events in life correct it. But that's the one thing you can't correct. It is unalterable. And I think that is one of the most potent potent uh, sources of that emotional distress. One thing that Julie didn't bring up, and I'm glad she didn't, many times people's grief is dramatically exacerbated because they feel guilty. Either the way they treated the person or the neglect that they had. You know, your father dies and you hadn't visited him for seven months because he got on your nerves. Something about where you believe you you fell short as a person in their lives and then they passed away. Or in worst case scenario, you you had a major fight, you had a major rift, and it has come to dominate the relationship and then the person passes away. And that guilt can just radically ratchet up the grief. Okay, well, on that light note, I better get going. Dr. Ray Grandin, I thank you for joining me here on The Doctor Is In. Walk with God, and maybe you see that person again in eternity. For information on Dr. Ray's presentations, books, and CDs, visit DRA.com and follow him on Facebook and Instagram. The Doctor is In is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network.